And ladies and gentlemen, we are recording now. Thank you, Gail. Welcome to Random Science. I'm your host, Francine Dash. Random Science is a podcast about the world of science, technology, and medicine. We talk directly to professionals and scientists in their respective fields and to everyday people about the changes happening all around us every day. In the winter of 2019, the COVID-19 virus was introduced to the United States, and by March 2020, it became known to the rest of the country. Since that time, there has been a debate as to what it is, where it came from, and what it will become, and its impact on all of us. In fact, that debate continues even today. In between that time, many people became ill. Unfortunately, some of them passed away. But the good news is vaccines were created, vaccines that offered hope for some, but for others, they weren't sold on the vaccines and didn't think they should get them. Today, we're talking about where we are and if we are still in a pandemic and if vaccines still matter. Our guest today is Dr. Mona Lisa Muchatuta. Dr. Mona is an assistant clinical professor and director of International Mini Fellowships in Emergency Medicine at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Dr. Mona, welcome to our podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Awesome, awesome. Before we go too far into the discussion, I really like the audience to learn more about your field of practice and actually a little bit more about what you do, if you don't mind sharing. Okay, no, definitely not. So I'm an emergency medicine doctor. Um, and essentially, that means, you know, whenever you have an emergency, whatever it may be, from toe pain to belly pain to, you know, the worst, you know, baby delivery randomly, at car accidents, trauma, gunshots, stab wounds, everything from we run the gamut. So whenever you walk in the hospital without an appointment, um, I'm the doctor that you see when you come in. So we call ourselves resuscitationists and pride ourselves in being the best doctors for whatever and whenever um, it comes in. So that's what we do best. Um, really good at resuscitating people. My academic interests are um, in global health. Um, and these days, global health means anything anymore, right? right? Like, right, I think it exactly. used to be, um, my interests were mostly trying to work on developing um, emergency medicine and ensuring that every single person gets the best quality emergency care um, possible, independent of ability to pay. Um, now, most of us in America probably feel like this is like a given. We see emergency signs everywhere, but right. emergency medicine is a very young um, a specialty, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it's only 50 years in America, so you can imagine the rest of the world doesn't have it. So that's what I enjoy doing. I did my uh, fellowship at Stanford. I spent two years of my life traveling across the world, um, just doing needs assessments in places for development of care. So that sort of brings us back to two years ago now when the pandemic sort of rolled in. Right. I was probably a year out of my fellowship and, you know, we could talk a little bit more sort of how that tied in working abroad and how that brought back. So my current interest now, just because we've been tied down on the ground and how things have shifted a little bit is uh, focusing on decolonization of global health. I mean, mm, social wow. EM is kind of a very, um, I don't want to say um, cutting edge um, uh part of emergency medicine right now. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, even after the Black Lives Matter movement, um, sort of decolonizing, like a lot of people complain about, especially people of color, about um, the type of emergency care or medicine in general, access to healthcare that you have. Um, and there's a lot of things that are steeped in colonial um, history or colonial um, origins within our healthcare systems 
and it's not any different from anything else in our in our in our world in our, in the world that we live in now. So that's something I've been spending a lot of time on, giving talks to medical students, um, giving talks to um, other groups around the country. So um, just a little snippet, we could talk more. I guess. As absolutely, go. absolutely. We're going to dive into that, and let's let's go ahead and take that dive. When it comes to COVID nineteen and and all that happened during that time. Um, how were you specifically positioned in this pandemic and what exactly were you called upon to do? Well, I don't know that anybody was ever really positioned, but I think everybody is in whatever the right place is supposed to be at the right time. So, um, you know, I feel like I was well-trained to be in this place. I trained at King's County Hospital, which is, um, uh, and my residency program is one of the top emergency medicine residents in the country. So I felt like I was very well trained. Um, my training in global health also sort of prepared me to be able to work in low resource settings. This is all we do in global health. Um, you know, we will go to a low resource country, a low resource hospital and have to take care of patients with limited resources. Like we're so used to having, you know, all the mm-hmm. bells and whistles CAT scans and all of this stuff. And we didn't have any of that um, mm-hmm. during the pandemic. So, you know, my global health experience, I think learning from my colleagues abroad who make do with whatever they have, right. who teach you to sort of have that MacGyver mentality, which I mean, emergency doctors are that anyway. Um, you know, That's we'll a great way happy. to put it, actually. That's a great way to exactly. put it. Exactly. Right. You know, so in those first couple of months, you know, when we didn't know what was going on, you didn't know what we had or things were running out, you know, uh, patients were coming. You just had to figure it out as you went. And uh, were you there in New York when this was happening, when it broke out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So, that was yeah, a hot so spot I, at the time. Okay. Yeah. So I wasn't, yeah, I live in New York and I um, had just moved back from California because I did a fellowship two years in California and I just moved back a year earlier in 2018. So I was here uh, working in one of our uh, public catchment hospitals here in Brooklyn, New York. And so what essentially that means is, you know, all of the patients that don't have um, health insurance, um, all of the patients that are elderly patients that even if they have the best insurance, they're not going to go to, they're not going to pick and choose which hospital they go to. They go to the closest hospital, right. you know, uh, most of our immigrant populations, um, most of our unemployed people, they come to this hospital because even if, you know, you can't pay, we'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. So essentially, you know, the volumes were very, very high. And then on top of that, these are people of color, you know, uh, Black, American, African, Caribbean, our Hispanics, um, and all the people, sorry, all the people that, I mean, Latinx people, and essentially people that just have nowhere else to go. This is where they came. So, you know, we had volume was going up. And then also we were all already under resourced. So is this this one hospital, sorry to interrupt you, doctor, but is this one hospital handling all of these different groups during the pandemic? Mostly. So yes, yes and no, Um, just because, you know, it is the public hospital. So people sort of choose which hospital you can go to. I got you. Okay. There's another hospital that I work. So I work at three different hospitals. My clinical appointment, which you um, highlighted is at SUNY Downstate because that's the academic hub. But I do work at another hospital. Um, and even at that time, I was working at a third hospital. And all these three hospitals are actually in the same I got um, okay. vicinity. Mm-hmm. So you guys are in Indianapolis, right? So yes. I went to undergrad in Indianapolis. So it's kind of like where 
IU, that medical center complexes where their train is. So right. Wishard, I don't know if it's still called Wishard and IU, and there was a third hospital that was kind of there. Right. It's the same setting. But then um, a certain type of people will go to IU and a certain type of people will go to Wishard, right? Mm-hmm. right, right. And I worked, I worked at the Wishard-esque hospital okay i got you i got that analogy okay okay no 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 it was a good analogy especially for people here in indianapolis it's called eskenazi now but it used to be called you're correct yes they exactly some work there when this was happening um when you're having these patients this flood of patients come in during the pandemic you're treating them, you're going through, I'm imagining that you're going through the process of dealing with patients so quickly. How, what was the process for you and doctors like yourselves to try to get a handle on things, to create a, a system in the midst of that, to kind of mm-hmm. deal with this influx of sick patients? Right. So you essentially just turn your mind, it ends up being a war zone. I mean, when they were talking about it being war zones, that's really what it was. Um, you know, so if you're like the doctor in charge, which is what I was, um, whenever I'm at work, you get there and then you just kind of have to assess what's happening and you kind of walk through and see who are the sickest looking people. You know, you use your vitals, you use your blood work, you use whatever we have at the time or just how they look in front of you. Does this look like, so there's some, you know, we triage patients generally anyway, when people come in for whatever illness, Um, but there's a different type of triaging system that's used for mass disasters and essentially that's where we were where there's just patients that are triaged as like this person is almost um, dead essentially and you know those patients usually take a lot of um, resource and a lot of time and very very unlikely to survive so that's sort of how it went you know you heard the stories on the news that doctors had to pick and choose who they were going to help who they were not Mm-hmm. And that's really what eventually boils down to, like, imagine yourself in a war zone where bullets are flying. If somebody has a broken leg and it's a young person versus like somebody that has a broken leg, a broken arm, and they look unconscious. And, you know, if you're going to have to choose, and it's a really, really bad space to be in. If you have to choose, like, who can I help because it's only one of me, mm-hmm. then you pick the person with a broken leg. At least they can hop on the one leg. We can tie off the bleed on the one other leg. And then we can hop along. At least I can save somebody rather than try to save both and lose both. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how it was. Um, but how do you deal with that as a doctor? I mean, I don't know if you were in that position where you had to choose, but that has to have some sort of effect on a human yeah. being, right? Oh, yeah, it definitely does. It definitely does because, you know, um, you end up just being in a space where um, a lot of your personally, you know, you end up being either like a, it's either a, 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 what is it? A um, big picture person, mm-hmm. right? So you can't necessarily fixate on like the micro details because the micro details will get you caught up in, and that's what emergency doctors are. We, we're like a big picture person. I need to save you now. And then when you're stable, we'll send you somewhere else. And then the next doctors can focus on the little bitty details, right? Everybody has a role to play. So that's really how I think we managed that. I mean, we were short-staffed. The nurses, we're all afraid. You don't know what to do. So you're just kind of jumping in and just we'll see what happens after. So this pandemic really hit emergency services extraordinarily hard. And you all are in this war zone where you're having to figure out creating systems on the fly as to how you're going to not only treat people, but who gets saved based on resources available. That had to have been 
Wow. Wow. Well, let's let's backtrack a little bit because there's some still some confusion about COVID-19 mm-hmm. um, and okay. you, you were facing people who had this illness and probably others. What is or was COVID-19 and are we still in a pandemic from your perspective? So I definitely think we're still in a pandemic um, and, you know, that's, uh, I guess, controversial for some, but I think we are. Um, because, you know, we haven't really, I mean, we still keep getting these surges that keep coming back and forth, the subvariants that still keep coming back and forth. The good news, though, to me is that at least the variants are not as strong uh, or they're not as put, um, life-threatening, I, should I, I should say. So, you know, that gives people the sense of, oh, okay, it's just a flu now, et cetera. So, okay, I can understand that. So, you know, I guess, in thinking about how best to sort of live our lives moving forward, for me, um, I guess I think of, you know, I do the best that I can. Granted, like our government officials and our politicians give us guidance on how we're supposed to live our lives and how we're supposed to best kind of get through this pandemic. But I think that at some level, there has to be an individual decision for yourself and your families too, right? Um, mm-hmm. We're past the phase where, we're all locked down and there's rules and laws that are telling us how to live our lives. So I think, you know, for me, I guess I'll give examples just to make it clear. Um, you know, I work in a hospital still. This is a place that we perceive to be high risk. Mm-hmm. And when I go there, I keep my mask on. And that's the rule. When yeah. I'm at work, I have my mask on all day. We don't necessarily wear head to toe PPE anymore because we now know that as long as I'm not in the room with the patient, I'm not exposed. However, we know that there's a lot of people walking around the street that are COVID positive and you don't even know. Um, and we are vaccinated now. I've been vaccinated and boosted and waiting, um, ready for the fourth booster, ready to take it. But, you know, they told us that we're going to be getting this annually, essentially, um, in, in the fall with like the flu and the COVID vaccine. So my personal decision, just because I don't like needles on me, is I'm just gonna get you and I both. <laughs> I'm just gonna get them both together in the fall, mostly because that's when it's probably gonna be a little bit more pertinent. Right now, I'm outside. The weather, we're walking around outside, so I feel okay. Um, so when I'm indoors, like when I'm traveling, when I'm on buses, when I'm on a plane, I keep my mask on. Um, it's scary to me to see people. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I keep my mask on. Um, you know, I go to restaurants. I go out. I visit my family. So I keep my mask on as long as I perceive myself to be too close to too many people that I don't know. Um, If I'm in the park, I'm walking around outside. I live in New York City, so there's a lot of walking involved. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I'm walking on the street, I keep, I take my mask off. But Mm -hmm. if I'm, and I keep my mask on me, but if I'm approaching an area where it looks like I'm going to be getting too close to people, if I'm getting on the train, I put my mask on. That's my personal mm-hmm, choice. Mm-hmm. I've seen people who wear masks all day long. Like as long as they leave their house, they put their mask on and they walk yeah. outside. I think that's okay too. I think we're just in a space where I think it's opposite now. Before, you know, there was no mask shaming. And now I think there's mask shaming. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I mean, this virus killed mostly um, people of color. And I have older people in my life that I care about that have issues that, you know, have health issues. And I think it's my responsibility to do the best that I can, even though I want to live my life. Well, let's talk about that. Um, There have been many cases that some people feel point to health inequities, like this pandemic kind of shone a bright light on uh, 
people having access to certain care, mm -hmm. people having access to certain resources, even certain treatments based mm -hmm. on some of the things you mentioned earlier, uh, employability, whether they were employed, senior citizens, poverty, impoverished, homeless. Did you happen to see any of these health inequities? Um, and, and is there something that you've seen or encountered that has caused you to look at things a different way? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it was, it's hard not to, um, but I, I just want to be clear that this wasn't something that just started with the pandemic. It always happened. Mm -hmm. So I think my, um, my, you know, clinical experience, or at least my personal experience was that uh, those iniquities were always there. And we saw them and spoke about them at length in the past. Um, and this is a uh, pandemic essentially took advantage of that and then made it worse. I could just shine a light on it, um, but this wasn't something new. So like I mentioned that these are safety net hospitals, most of them that I work at, there's a reason why they're safety net hospitals is because these are the hospitals that have been designated where people go for that. Um, and even if you look at any of our um, public services across the country, most of the times those types of places don't necessarily get you know, all the bells and whistles that all the other places are. Granted, we get the CAT scans, we get everything, we get, you know, right, right. medicines, et cetera, but it's, you know, the services are slower, there's lower, longer wait times, um, even staffing, there's less staffing at some of these places, mostly because, you know, um, providers here are paid less than if I went to work at a fancy hospital elsewhere, right? So, so some of these inequities that we're talking about, have you seen any changes put in place to address some of those things? Like you just mentioned pay. Have, have any of these things been addressed or changed to? So I, I don't know. I don't think, uh, I mean, as far as like resources, because I guess initially when um, people complained that there weren't any masks, there weren't any gloves, and therefore providers were afraid to help patients because we didn't have what we needed. We mm -hmm. have that. We have gloves in excess. We have PPE in excess now. We have, but this happened after there were calls for it, which shouldn't have been the case, right? After, you know, celebrities and, you know, wealthy people donated them and sort of shamed, you know, people to pay for those things. So we have those things, but I'll tell you that even wait times just to be seen are still long. So mm -hmm. I guess even sort of in the beginning of the pandemic, what made it worse was somebody would come and sit in the waiting room and, you know, perhaps you came because you have this, splitting headache that you didn't know what it was and you're sitting in the waiting room maybe not even wearing a mask because you don't know right, right and right. then you're sitting in the waiting room for three to four hours people coming in and out of that waiting room and then by the time we see you maybe now you're really really sick and then mm. things go downhill for you mm -hmm. but then even not even just for the individual person um all the people that that person was in contact in the waiting room if you go to high income or high resource hospitals wait times are like 20 to 30 minutes. Right. In right? fact, some hospitals are trying to do away with waiting rooms, right? They're trying to process people and put them into individualized spaces. Is that mm -hmm. an effort that has been discussed or have you seen any movements or is it back to medicine as usual? So we've seen movement in trying to create these spaces, but like 
I mean, New York City is especially difficult because space is prime, right? So if a building is already built, you have to do what you can do within the building. Mm -hmm. So we've seen, you know, triage this way, triage that way. But I mean, it's hard because one, even post-pandemic, a lot of um, providers quit their jobs. So we're even more understaffed now than we were even before the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. So we're understaffed, having to do a lot more now with the staffing that we have. Um, and, you know, as far as pay, I think that's something that's way down the line. They're not even focused on that now, which rightly so. We need to focus on the medicine, at least for now. Mm -hmm. And I guess they can just say, you know, the doctors are not people that are struggling right now. But um, there's some movement, but mostly in like the smaller gloves, masks, et cetera. Um, flow systems wise, uh, I think that's maybe after the pandemic has been declared gone, perhaps then they can sort of focus on that. But now we have monkeypox kind of peeking its head up. So everybody's a little like um, on edge right now trying to figure out what's next. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Trying to respond to the next next big scare. Exactly. Well, you, you shared a lot about what this has looked like from your perspective and some of the tough decisions that had to be made in those spaces. And I've heard, and many people have heard people talk about it from the doctor's point of view, dealing with patients who had to say goodbye through a cell phone because they couldn't have loved ones there. With all of that going on, there are still people who just don't believe that it's real. So why do you think that that perspective exists? And why do you think that people, do you think that has led to so many people still not being vaccinated? And will that cause problems for us in the future? You know, that is so hard. Like, I I just don't know why. I can't understand. I can't understand why somebody would not believe this. Unless if it's just something that's so foreign to you that it just doesn't touch you. And I think this pandemic has essentially showed us that we're a very me, me, me world uh, where nobody really, if it doesn't touch me and my family, then it doesn't matter, right? So I can't, I can't even begin. I can't, I can't guess why somebody would not believe that. I think, I mean, it's just like how some people don't believe that people are getting shot and murdered on the streets, right? So maybe the same analogy qualifies, I guess, because I don't know how this whole thing could be happening in the world and you think like doctors and nurses and all these people are in on a conspiracy to create a virus so that we can control people. Like, I mean, I saw people die, like even talking about the story about people saying goodbye on the phone just gave me a memory that I'll never forget the story of, you know, and like I mentioned that we have a lot of immigrant populations in Brooklyn. And this woman had, you know, she, you know, it's so bad because people, they, and some some of the people that didn't believe that they had COVID died, right? Because they'll tell you, we had them in rooms or isolation rooms, and you're trying to keep them oxygenated, and they start getting confused and ripping off things. So you're constantly trying to come back and put the mask on, and it looks very brutal because you're trying to force the oxygen back on them so they can breathe, and they feel like you're choking them, and they're trying to pull it off. And this woman is coughing and throwing stuff. I'm like, ma'am, you have COVID. Put it back on. She's like, ah, COVID. So can you imagine, like, somebody is like getting agitated and angry. You can't breathe right now, but you're still saying you don't have COVID. And maybe, wow. you know, there was also like a um, stigma with it initially in the first days, right? People would be like, I have, no, I don't have no COVID. I have this. And, you know, people made it seem like it was like a disease that you got from just 
I mean, a disease is a disease. Even STIs, nobody walks into the world and prays to get it, you know. To get it, it's a mistake, it happens. Mm -hmm. But this is a disease you got from breathing, touching door handles and whatever. And for people to die from that is just just mind-boggling. So I can't explain why people do that and unless it just doesn't touch them. And moving forward, you know, um, experience is the greatest teacher, I think. So mm-hmm. when it comes to their doorstep, I think they will believe and they'll understand. I mean, even all politicians, many of them pretended like it didn't exist until they themselves got it and then dialed back their rhetoric. And then mm-hmm. we're just quiet about it now because they're more, I think it's, there's just too many um, outside influences, I guess, mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. Do you feel that, do you feel that as a scientist, as a doctor, that you all have to compete against people who don't know that, who don't have the experience? Do, do you feel that there's a narrative war? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, how do you educate? How do you educate patients in a space like that? You know, right now we're sitting at over 93 million cases of COVID that we have Mm -hmm. tabulated. We're still over Mm -hmm. a million deaths and and counting. Mm -hmm. Right. People are getting better. But so in that narrative war, how how do you go about educating people on staying safe and taking care because that's still a part of the job right so you know in the heat of the pandemic and like just the frustrations of all of this i created an instagram account that i would post videos i made videos whatsapp videos and all of these videos some of them even ended up i didn't expect this but i was making them to send to my family my family members just so they could share with their church friends and their friends and their friends like listen our my daughter's a doctor, this is what, and she's in New York, and this is what's happening, and we did that. And then, um, you know, I have an Instagram page that I would make videos, like what I was doing, how I was doing it, what things looked like in the hospital. But then after a while, you get tired, because like, I mean, I'm tired too, right? Everybody had like, their three months sitting at home, and, and we didn't have that. And so I'm turning out all of these videos I go to work I come back make these videos and send them out to people and then finally I just I was so burnt out I was like I can't do this anymore so you know now what I do is I I talk to people I do things like this like you know at least it's one thing that I know just kind of goes out to people mm-hmm. um if someone reaches out to me and asks me questions I always respond like they'll send me um direct messages emails I can get random text messages from friends of friends of friends and I'll respond to that and I know a lot of like doctors are in the same space as well as far as like fighting disinformation I mean nowadays everything is on social media it's so toxic it's so like emotionally draining to fight with some person behind like a computer that will start quite you know like are you even a real doctor are you this are you this and I don't think I need to even do that so Mm -hmm. I focus most of my energy at work so I see a patient, I always ask people, are you vaccinated? And I'm not forcing you to get it. Like some people have reasons why they shouldn't. But if I sense that there's like some misunderstanding or something, I'll take some time and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And it does make a difference because I've had even some of our, our, our staff, our security officers at work, they're like, doc, I got it because of you. Because you talked to me that time. And that's enough for me. You know, at least if the people that I interact with um we're on the fence and I can talk to them those are the people that I can reach if you're like all the way over here and you're like no it is like the wrath of whoever that's causing that caused the virus I can't do that because even for my emotional space my just 
my sanity, I can't do it. So mm-hmm. I guess it's like a pick and choose at this point. Like if that's what you want to do, sure, go ahead. But for the greater good, I think this is what you should do, but I'm not going to argue with you. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, so it does sound like it, it might have some effect on care if they're resistant to you giving them the information. Uh, oh yeah, it is. Because even some patients, like I mentioned, the ones that would say, and back then we didn't even have treatment, right? Whereas now, if a patient is high risk um, and they do get COVID, we do have drugs that we can give, right? right? So, but that takes a person acknowledging that they have it. Like we did mm-hmm. a test. For, some patients even refuse for us to do the COVID test on them because they think us doing the COVID test is giving you the COVID. And you're like, that's not the swab is, is you know, but, and I try to explain it, but, you know, there's just different. And within the com- community that I work in, initially it was very, um, was a very confrontational conversation, but there's a lot of work was done on the ground. I think, you know, we'll have a lot of physicians of color at my hospital as well that did a lot of work, like social media wise, shared our videos, and some of them were on national TV to with people started saying, oh, that's my doctor. I see her when I go to the hospital. And then because they see a face that they know right, or a right. face that they've seen before, they're right. like, okay, I believe it. Because it's different when you're just seeing, you know, the Surgeon General making this public announcement on TV, right. just thinking about, you know, just distrust of medical care, especially in, in minority communities. They needed to see um, doctors that they know or their own personal doctors saying, hey, or someone they know in their family telling them. And then people came around. I mean, Brooklyn, in New York, vaccination stalls a little bit, mostly in minority communities. But like now we're we're like one of the highly highest vaccinated um, boroughs, mm-hmm. not boroughs, cities, cities in the country. And even mask adherence in New York. I just came from Charleston last weekend. And that was baffling to me. Mm. How like Charleston, South Carolina? Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 They have higher unvaccinated rates down there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's just regional, I think. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. With for those who chose to be vaccinated, uh, there seems to be a different type of confusion right now. People are confused as to whether or not they're fully vaccinated. What does it mean to be fully vaccinated? (laughs) <laughs> okay, so it depends on the day that we're talking about it. So, you know, um, I guess technically I wouldn't even be fully vaccinated right now. I'm vaccinated and boosted, but I have one booster and there's actually two boosters now. So technically to be fully vaccinated, you should have gotten four shots. Um, if you had your first vaccine and then six months later you had another, your second vaccine, you've, you're vaccinated, you have two vaccines, essentially. But when they first started um, announcing the vaccination, they said the two boosters, number one and number two, and if you've had two, you're fully vaccinated, right? So that's what people, that's what they mean. Mm -hmm. But then a booster came out um, six months after that second one, Mm -hmm. which we should have gotten. And so if you've only gotten two out of three, you're not fully vaccinated. Actually, you should have had four by now. (laughs) <laughs> and so you're not fully vaccinated. I think the fully vaccinated thing should just go away because it's confusing. Yes. You should just say how many, how many boosters do you, how many vaccines have you had? Mm-hmm. I've had, and that's what I asked. So like, how, have you, are you vaccinated? I'm like, yes, I've had, I've had two. Mm-hmm. And then somebody will say I've been vaccinated and boosted, which means they've had three. So I think you should just say the number of shots you've had because okay. then there's no confusion. I've had three, I've had four, I've had two. I just mm-hmm. had one. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that clarifies it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for jumping into that deep water. <laughs> yeah, I think even also like um, the confusion I've seen also is like in after you've been vaccinated, getting COVID is another confusing thing for people that, oh, I thought I'm vaccinated. I shouldn't get COVID. And that's not true. You can actually still test positive for COVID. But the point is, we're here sitting and talking about it while you are COVID positive, right? You're not on a ventilator. You're not really struggling to it's breathe. It's those more harsh that. symptoms that you're trying to mitigate with the vaccinations. Exactly. Correct? Exactly. So, you know, so that's another confusion. But once people get it, they're like, oh, okay, because I thought maybe my vaccine didn't work. I'm like, no, it worked. Wait, you're going home. You came because you felt sick. You're COVID positive, but I'm discharging you home. So it worked. This is good news. Right, right, right. Well, being a big picture doctor, before we let you go, I want to just ask you two remaining things that we are having to deal with post-pandemic. One is people are dealing with, um, there's a lot of talk about, since people were locked away, social interactions and mental health. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've had to touch on, but uh, as a professional in this space, have you s- had to deal with that yourself? Have you had to deal with some of the awkwardness that people have had trying to reconnect and in, in those social spaces or mm-hmm. having to deal with people that feel uh, mentally an- anxious uh, about pretty much everything around them because nobody wants to get sick? Uh, mm-hmm. People don't want to put themselves in a bad position. How as a physician have you addressed those two? things yeah so I mean it's been tough uh, we had I mean I'm a big proponent of therapy so I go to therapy I see a therapist um, and we do that every four weeks and we talk about you know how I'm feeling how tired I'm feeling etc um, you know deep in the pandemic we had a psychiatrist that would put their PPE on and come and spend the day with us at work um, this is unheard of because doctors usually are the worst people but this is like one of those things that really knocked us off our feet so if we could knock us off our feet we know that most likely everybody else is struggling so you know social interactions um i mean i think we just have to give each other grace you know like you can't walk into a space and try to hug somebody and then the person doesn't want to hug and you're like oh you think i'm dirty you know it's an awkward sensation it's like putting your arm out to shake somebody's hand and then somebody says oh no Mm-hmm. Um, but I liken it to the days before COVID when if somebody had a cold, right? Like it's right. socially acceptable to be like, oh, sorry, I can't shake your hand. I have a cold, right? Right, right. So right. that's, I think that's sort of what I've, I mean, I'm a hugger, so I still like to hug. I just hug, turn my face away and hug, and hopefully there's no COVID on your body. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just hard. I think it's just a personal, it's a personal thing that people sort of need to decide as far as like wellness and anxiety and social settings. Eventually, we're going to have to come back to work, come back to the office. And I think if people can just understand that if somebody feels uncomfortable shaking hands, they might have to come to work because maybe your job is not going to take that. No, you can't. Oh, I feel anxious to come back to my job. But, mm-hmm. you know, just to understand that this is kind of what people are going through. Um, the la- larger um, settings where people are interacting with strangers, I think it's okay to fist bump. Like I still do that with people that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it's a personal decision. I think, right. you know, I, I don't necessarily go out and judge people on what they do. So 
I feel like I should just be given the same um, grace in, right. in, in, in how I interact. Um, mentally, people are, well, my interactions with people within the clinical setting, most times is their bigger issue is not necessarily their mental, it's usually more physical. So um, I definitely refer a lot more patients are um, to Jerry Psych. I see a lot more people coming in with panic attacks that they think is chest pain or a lot more people coming in with panic attacks or anxiety attacks that they think they're having like a, a, bio, like a physiologic illness and it's really panic attacks. Mm-hmm. Most of those have been in patients who had um, really, really bad COVID, like the elderly patients that were maybe intubated. Mm-hmm. Um and were in, you know, the hospital when it was just really bad, when maybe something was going on and there just wasn't somebody to come around and check on you. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's reasonable. I mean, I mean, I don't think any of the anxieties or any of the feelings that people are having are unusual mm-hmm. or unreasonable because, you know, we all experience whatever we experience differently. Right. And so I can't necessarily say that, you know, how you're reacting to this is abnormal. All I can do is reassure you that it's not your heart and it's not your lungs Mm -hmm. and you know um but then you know my uh, communities of color as well they sort of telling somebody that oh no this is this is anxiety is also sort of a taboo also because what you mean i'm crazy like no i'm not crazy you want Mm -hmm. to send me to there are different cultural responses to mental health exactly so i think you know there's a lot of work to be done around normalizing um accessing mental health or mental wellness Mm-hmm. Um, self-care is something else also like I just read this book about uh, mental health and African-Americans where we have this mentality where um, it's just like well we survived this and this and this this is nothing we can survive it right so it's just this push through it uh, mentality which really is not healthy it, right. it gets you places but I think you know there's space for just saying listen I just need to stop in this moment and just right. Well, building bridges out of trauma, right? They get you to the next phase, but those bridges can collapse on you. Exactly. So so it's been hard, but I think mental wellness is something that, you know, our communities, our community leaders, church leaders, everybody just sort of needs to push because people think that sometimes, and you know, I mean, depends on what your faith is. Definitely, you know, your faith can help you. But sometimes those connections in your brain are just like telling you untreating. So... Well, thank you, Dr. Mona. And we're going to have to let that be the last word. I really appreciate you spending time with us. And again, that is Dr. Mona Lisa Muchatuta. Hopefully I did justice to your name. Yes, um, you did. And I want to thank our listeners for your participation. We want to encourage listeners to continue this discussion through our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram at Pointcaster. This podcast is brought to you in part by Eliac Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians and anybody who's got something to say. And of course, Pointcast News. To listen to any of our podcasts, please go to our website at pointcast.news or visit us at Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to like and follow us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Be sure to join us next time. Be blessed and do take care. We're out, Gail. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Mona. That was awesome. I just no. <laughs> I just texted uh, Barbara. I said, gosh, she's great. She said, no. <laughs> You've got a good friend in her. And I just want to say for myself, I just appreciate you taking your time out to be with us today. 
and we want oh. this message gets out to people because what you said has great value and we hope that people will listen yes thank you so much for having me this i love doing this so yeah <laughs> when barbara told me that i was like oh, of course why not i love it <laughs> right 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 it was great conversation i really appreciate it yes. thank you all right no problem ladies you guys have a good weekend thank you thank, thank you now here Bye. Bye. How was it, Miguel? It was great. Just a second here.